Welcome to Equivalence by Evelist, a mission-based initiative offering an unbiased source of info to people who aspire to make informed decisions and grow their career in companies who care about gender equity. I am Sophie Luray, and in this podcast, I want to open a dialogue about the notion of equivalence and how it looks like in everyday personal actions and corporate decisions. I invite change agents, men and women who are making it happen in their team, industry, and communities to talk about their journey, their practical tips, their moments of doubt and epiphanies. I hope you enjoy it and tell us what you want to hear about at hello at evelist.org. Welcome to Equivalence Podcast. And today we're going to talk about one male-dominated sector, if there's any, religious organizations. The three Abrahamic faiths count for 3.5 billion people on earth, and they all run highly organized institutions. However, women in leadership positions are a, a rarity, I would say even a miracle. According to a, a publication of Pew Research, some have none at all or only a few exceptions. Some branches of Muslim organization allow women to lead groups of women only, and recently a handful of women have led Friday prayers for mixed gender worshippers. And according to the same research, close to no women were given leadership positions in major Jewish organizations in the U.S. so far. When it comes to Christians, many churches, including many of the largest denominations, such as the Roman Catholic Church or the Mormons and the Southern Baptist Convention, do not allow women to be ordained to hold leadership positions at all. And looking at nine major religious organizations in the U.S. that both ordain women and allow them to hold top leadership slots, four had a woman in the top leadership position, and so far, each of these four had only one woman in the top of the organization. So today, I'm really excited to host one of them, Katya Adams, who serves as the senior pastor of The Table, a Boston church startup. So Katya, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sophie. It's a joy to get to chat to you today. Yeah, it's exciting to have you. Katya, before we dig in further in the, really in the meat of it all, in the current status of women in the church, tell us more about you because you have a quite a, a fascinating journey. You're born in Iran, you were raised in the UK, and I heard that you were a medical doctor for six years before your life took a totally different path. So you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, I have a definitely a diverse background. So my family are ethnically Armenian. I was born in Iran, which straight away put us in the minority of Armenians in Iran. Um, we lived there until I was five. So whilst I was living in Iran, it was during the Iran-Iraq war. So that was an interesting experience of growing up in the middle of a war zone. And then we moved to England when I was five, and I grew up there, went to medical school there, uh, started working in medicine there. And all through kind of just before starting to study medicine, I was really aware, actually, I became a Christian at a young age, and I was really aware that there was a real passion in me to be part of shaping churches, shaping culture in cities. I grew up as one of four daughters. 
So in my family, even though I was born in the Middle East, very unusually, I was raised with this understanding that being a girl is not a negative. I had no concept that there was people in the world who genuinely believed that women could do less than men. So, you know, growing up, I had a passion for church, had a passion for really being a leader and shaping conversations and influencing. I grew up with that mindset. And part of the reason I decided to study medicine was because I really wanted to be stretched. I wanted to have myself challenged. I wanted to grow as a person so that even in church context, what I was bringing was not just spirituality, although I believe spirituality is incredibly important, but that I was bringing all sorts of gifts and wisdom from different forms of thought. And medicine for me was a really great one for that. And then as I was studying medicine, as I was working as a doctor, I met my husband who is South African and we decided to move to South Africa when we got married. So I lived for almost five years in South Africa. We had two babies in South Africa. And then just as we were getting in close to the fifth year of living in South Africa, we felt this prompting to move to the States and have a church startup um, <laughs> and help create culture. What, what I'm most fascinated about and really believe what the church is for isn't just about getting together for religious activities on a Sunday, but rather is about bringing incredibly beautiful culture into cities. And so that's what we decided to do. We moved our family, packed up everything, moved to Boston. What an incredible city to be in. And I'm leading this beautiful church startup with 35 people in tow, and it's loads of fun. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. So before we get there, I, I wanted to actually ask you about one part of that journey, which is, okay, you got married you got married to a man that was as, as well in the church and you had two kids and you led with your husband that not-for-profit organization that you started yes. in your days in South Africa. How would you describe the way you both partnered in leadership? I want to know because you're married, you're leading a community and you were partnering as well in your organization. So what were the, the biggest challenge that you faced as a I'd say, an equal leadership team? Yeah, great question. I have to say that my husband, Julian, he is a miracle. He was raised by incredible parents. His mom is a strong woman. And, you know, early on in his childhood, he had a conviction that men and women should lead together. He actually really unusually grew up in a church context where the wife of the leadership couple, she was arguably the stronger leader. And he really saw that. And so when we got together, he was one of my biggest cheerleaders. He was like, of course, you should be leading alongside me, even though we were both very familiar that the church context generally doesn't tend to invite women into the same areas of influence as men. Our biggest challenge in leading together was not so much within, because if it was just the two of us, we found it super easy. We actually got into a great rhythm where we genuinely learned to lean on each other's strengths and not have any specific jobs that were orientated around a certain gender, but just recognizing that we both had the opportunity to lean on each other's strength in the right moment. So 
the two of us found that kind of dance, as I would describe it, pretty easy when it was just the two of us. The big challenge was getting the world outside of the two of us to be able to accept that a couple genuinely can lead in true equality and that both people can be equally gifted. And that really was the funny struggle for me. We would go into contexts, you know, when we were leading our nonprofit in South Africa, we would often get invited to speak at conferences, to train leadership teams internationally. We were involved in all sorts of different kind of both motivational speaking, but also church leadership contexts. And we would both be invited because I think people were trying to be kind to have both of us there and knew that <laughs> technically we were both leading, you know, the website said that we were both leading this thing. So they'd invite us both. But when we arrived, it would be very obvious that people didn't really know what to do with a husband and wife who both exercised authority, who both genuinely believed that their voice was important. And so it really became apparent to us early on, we can't assume that when people invite us, they actually want to hear from both of us. So we went on a journey, if I'm honest, of being very clear and communicating, maybe over-communicating. This is what we both bring to the table. This is our strengths. If you want someone who can strategize with you and help shape the culture, Katya is going to be really good at that. You know, we would over-communicate on our gifts and strengths so that when people invited us, they kind of had been prepped because we realized that the Christian world doesn't really know what to do with two people who arrive and are both gifted and both feel like their voice is important. So we had to almost feel like we were educating people on that. And I'm sure there are loads of other couples who do this, loads of other teams who do this. But in the context that we were going into, we were very aware it's our responsibility and actually our privilege to define who we are so that people know what to expect. And then over time, we quickly learned that some people, as we communicate that, are not comfortable with us, and some people love to have us in. And that's the joy of pioneering and the challenge. <laughs> some people love you, and some people, you're going to hate you. <laughs> I was about to ask you if you had a few rejection. I assume you, I assume you did, like, polite ones, but, oh, you didn't come with cookies? <laughs> Making, baking, you were not baking cookies for the church. <laughs> we had some hysterical moments where people would say to me, oh, it's so lovely that Julian has found a pretty wife who can sit <laughs> on the front row and cheer him on as he does the work. And uh, we would just smile and then, you know, kind of get on with our work the normal way we do it. And people would be either really frustrated or upset or kind of just never have us back. And, you know, that's okay. I think I've grown comfortable with understanding if you want to change the world, there's going to be resistance. That's not a reason not to finish the world. That's just something that you've got to get comfortable with. You've got to be able to embrace people who will not see the way that you do. And you've got to be able to stay the course. If you believe in what you believe strong enough, stay the course. That's what I've kind of taken in this last season. Let's be honest. Have you ever felt, the two of you, have you ever felt a little bit of competition? Uh, <laughs> just before we got married, a friend of ours 
great guy. His name is Adam Bright. You can look him up. He's a leadership coach. And he did just one session with us just before we got married because we knew that we'd be working. We were like, wait, we're going to get married. We're going to be working 24-7 together. I'd already known that I was not going to be working as a doctor. We were going to lead this nonprofit together. So we kind of, we were aware this could be a recipe for disaster. And so we kind of had this session with him and he was great at helping us identify based on our personalities and strengths, areas that we would be vulnerable for wanting to compete. And honestly, it was eye-opening. It was super helpful. I think sometimes we're not proactive enough, you know, ahead of time, looking at where the issues of vulnerability relationally are going to be or where the areas of challenge are going to be and building for that. Thankfully, our leadership coach helped us in that proactively. So honestly, certainly when we were leading the nonprofit, there wasn't really moments of competition because we do have very different gifts and very different strengths. And so we were both able to kind of be able to cheer the other on as they were doing their thing. What I will say has been a challenging season is, so for the first Six years of our marriage, we led this nonprofit. We were both very much on equal footing and kind of leaning into our different strengths. In this season where we moved to the States, we felt like it would be right for me to be the main lead of the startup. And so even though Julian and I, we say we lead together because we're a united front, I'm the senior pastor. He's not the senior pastor. And so this year has been a really interesting transition for us as a married couple where we've done everything kind of side by side before, where we've read in this season because of my strengths, because I'm better in a kind of local church day-to-day building. That's just more my strength. Because of that, we've decided for the first time in our marriage to have me lead and him submit to my leadership in this sense. And that's definitely been a learning curve for both of us. It's definitely not been without challenge because we're learning new roles. But what I will say is, Both of us are sold 100% to the idea. So we keep coming back to this conversation of, is it worth it? Is it worth these kind of moments where we feel like we're butting heads? Absolutely it is because we're sold to this idea of letting people do what they were gifted to do fully. And just because I'm the woman, it doesn't mean that I have to step back, but rather we both are sold to the idea, whatever your gender your gift makes room for what you're meant to do. That's the thing that should lead. And so you're talking to me in a season where we're, it's the learning curve right now. <laughs> well, at least you won't have to be anymore explaining that you come as a package, you will be the senior leader. So when you get an invitation, it's quite clear. <laughs> Absolutely. It's created clarity. If anything, honestly, Sophie, it's brought up for me thoughts and questions that I thought we'd settled long ago. But suddenly me not having Julian next to me in the same way uh, is raising all sorts of questions around gender roles because I'm finding myself being the lone woman in a room full of Boston pastors. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the, you know, the safety of my husband next to me all of the time because I'm taking on this role. But suddenly it, we're pioneering again on what it means to be a woman in a man's world, that it's, it's worth it. 
Uh, about that, it's very interesting because about that, I was about to ask you and make a little preamble to my question. The Anglican Church was the first to ordain a female bishop and only last year. This year, Pope Francis named the first woman to a managerial position in the Vatican's most important office, the Secretary of State. In October as well, the world's bishops suggested that Francis reconvene a commission he had created at the urging of nuns, obviously, to study the ordination of women as permanent deacons. But he will still not consider as liberal, some would say, (laughs) or as progressive as he wants to be, he will still not consider ordaining women as priests, let alone bishops. Now, apart from Catholics, but they make for the, the majority of the Christians, if we look at, in reality, many Christians organizations, not, not-for-profit organizations, do not even provide a standard worth em- emulating. For example, I was looking at statistics. The representation of women in the senior leadership of evangelical non-profit organization is pretty much half, 50% less than found in secular non-for-profit. In higher education, for example, in the U.S., the Christian college member institution, they collectively serve a student body that is 60% female. And in 2015, they were looking at an analysis of individuals holding VP or title above VP, and it revealed that women held fewer than 30% of those employed in leadership role and 20% in senior leadership roles. So my question to you, how failing to empower women to the top of religious organization narrows the church's vision and makes it, my question is a bit biased, but makes it less equipped to be a force for good in the world. So the the church mission is to be a force for good. But when you don't get a chance fully if you're not empowering 50% of the world's population. So what's your take on that? Great question. Yeah, I love the way you describe it. The church's mission is to be a force for good in the world. Absolutely. That's what the church exists for. And I think the reality is when you say to half of the church, your voice cannot possibly Well, it's not even that it cannot, but it was not intended to influence Mm -hmm. impact because that's the conversation. That's what happens in churches. It's not even that, you know, leaders say to women, you can't do this, but rather they say you were never created to do this. I feel like that takes it one step deeper, where it's not even that we're just following some rules that some guy came up with, but it hits really deep at the core sense of identity of women, where women are told you weren't made to influence, you were made to follow. The problem with that is that you literally shut up. 50% of powerful influencers. It's like literally tying your hands behind your back in the middle of a wrestling match and just letting half of your body do the work. It's it's crazy. When Mm -hmm. you would never in any other circumstance weaken 50% of yourself in order to achieve a task. We would never do that. You know, athletes wouldn't hold back one of their legs and say, oh no, I should just go with one. It it doesn't make any sense to do that. 
And yet, unfortunately, that's exactly what some streams in the church, not all streams, but some streams in the church have done that. And the challenge is they've done that all in the name of God. And that's where it gets tricky. You know, historically, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that people of all faiths, not just Christians, people of all faiths have done things in the name of God that don't represent the God that they follow in any way, shape, or form. That's just fact. Christians across the board would agree to this, that, you know, in the Crusades, there were people who were saying that they were fighting and killing all in the name of God. That's obviously not truly representative of who the God of Christians is. But misguided people said that they were doing something in the name of God and genuinely believed they were doing the will of God when they were doing the exact opposite. I really believe the churches, again, some of the churches, this isn't true of everybody in the church, but some of the churches take the role of women in, not only in the church, but in the world at large. I believe it's this level of misguidedness where people are genuinely wanting to follow God. They're genuinely trying to represent him. But the problem is they're doing the exact opposite because when you look at the pages of the Bible, when you look particularly at Jesus in the Gospels, who is God who became man so that he could show us exactly what God is like. When you look at Jesus, you don't see a man who's holding women back. You don't see a man who's saying to 50% of humanity, hey, I don't want to hear your voice because your voice wasn't actually ever intended to influence Rather, he keeps doing incredibly offensive things in his time by raising women up, by allowing them to have a voice, and actually by rebuking the men around him, his own disciples, if they didn't pay attention to the women. So you kind of got this beautiful picture of God. You've got God in the flesh constantly insisting that women should be raised up and should be listened to and should be heard and should be trained to influence in exactly the same way as the men. And then you've got a church who is basically trying to put back in the box what Jesus took out of the box hundreds of years ago. I think it's time for us just to follow what Jesus did and let women free. I think it's a better representation of the heart of God, that's for sure. You kind of answered to the question I wanted to ask you after, because I was wondering if God was a chauvinist, because I know you've released a book last year called Equal, where you dissect quite eloquently what the Bible says, not what the church says, but what the Bible says about women and about men and about authority. So tell me more about that. So is God a chauvinist? I still have to ask the question because I like that question. <laughs> yes, I love that question. Well. Short answer to that is, no, he is not a chauvinist. But let me talk around that. You know, I want to make it really clear. Here I am, you know, <laughs> leading a church startup. I love the church. I believe that the church is a beautiful idea of God's. And I believe that even Christians who belong to churches, maybe who are not perfect, because no church is ever going to be perfect because we're humans. So go figure, we make mistakes. But 
even then that the church is still intended to be a force for good. So I want to say that because I'm about to get into a dialogue that might make it sound like I think the church is irrelevant. I really don't think the church is irrelevant, but I do think the church makes mistakes and we've got to be open to learning and got to be open to understanding better the principles of the Bible, because actually the principles of the Bible are incredibly forward thinking. And this is where I get a little bit sad, really, and I'm sure God gets incredibly sad, is that sometimes as Christians, we can represent the thoughts of the Bible in such a way that it makes it seem like absolutely like God is a chauvinist, like God is so backwards in his thinking. And actually, to be progressive, we need to adopt what modern day culture is saying and doing. Whereas I actually think we've got this all upside down, and it's because we've not understood just how forward-thinking the Bible is, just how much of a feminist Jesus was, just how radical the teaching of the Bible is in terms of drawing men and women alongside each other to be incredibly powerful and influential. And so what we've done is because we've lessened the incredible forward-thinking lens of the Bible, we've made it seem that the Bible is backwards, and if you want to be progressive, you better look outside of the Bible to find something progressive. Actually, I believe the Bible is so progressive, and that if the church understood the Bible really well and saw the heart of God accurately, we would be at the forefront of social justice. We would be at the forefront of raising women up. I think it is an indictment that there are less women in Christian NGOs and influential positions than other NGOs. It should be the other way around. If we've truly understood what God is about, We should be leading the way for social justice issues. And so, anyway, I get passionate about this. I think you can hear that. Of course. It's funny. I was nodding because I was thinking of something I read recently about the Catholic Church. And it might be a key to understanding why this reading of the fact that women should not be part of the leadership position and let's stay a band of bro, basically, happened. It's quite interesting and enlightening. So I was, I was reading about nuns and in particular the leadership conference of women religious. So it's a, a representation of the majority of sisters in the United States. And in their conference, they consistently stressed social justice in their public positions and priorities. While Catholic bishops, all male, obviously, in contrast, emphasize pretty much only sexual morality in anything that they're talking about. So it was very interesting to observe on one side It was all about social justice. And sometimes the dialogue clashed because some of the issues clashed. They were really prioritized social justice over sexual morality. Example, in the Obamacare, particularly because there was issues about, you know, contraception. Another area that was very interesting was the fact that in the sex scandal that infested decades of the Catholic Church, women, sisters in particular, but women in general, were leading the charge against this and were calling for actually for those men to be charged, for the the whole thing to be brought to light. And it got to a point where Pope Benedict called these nuns radical feminists because they were asking for justice for the survivors and asking to transform a culture, like I said, of bros, basically. So it's, it's quite interesting because it's very similar to any other industry. 
we see things repeating. And I'm wondering if there's a different type of leadership that women bring into an institution. And obviously, in the church, it's very radical because it is amongst the only industry, I would say, that has been 100% men forever. Yeah, I think absolutely there's going to be different nuance to leadership. It becomes difficult because when you try to overly define the differences, mm. we often become too simplistic. You know, you lose the nuances and the overlaps and what really makes a woman a woman, what makes something feminine, what makes something masculine. It actually becomes extremely difficult to overly define. I believe there's obviously biological differences, but I try to steer a little bit clear of being overly prescriptive of what I believe women in leadership bring that is different to men in leadership. Because, you know, sometimes people say to me, I'm sure the women bring more compassion or more a sense of community. That might be true on the large scale. Although I also know guys who bring a lot of compassion. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I never want to be overly prescriptive. But what I do think is interesting is these statistics are showing us something that is true generally and helps us see lenses and strengths that different genders bring, which is important and which is beautiful to recognize and celebrate. And I was most impacted about this. I read a book a few years ago, which if you haven't read and you're listening to this podcast, do yourself a favor and buy it. It's called Half the Sky, and it's this brilliant book that looks at, it really just charts how women are the most oppressed people on the planet today. And even though it's a heavy subject, I think the authors have pitched it perfectly for mobilizing people into action. It doesn't leave you depressed and paralyzed. It leaves you excited to change the world. But one of the things that they write in the book is they show how in communities struggling with poverty, uh, the number one factor that alleviates poverty is educating women. What they've seen again and again through different studies all over the world is that in communities of poverty, if you educate the men, what tends to happen in those communities is that it doesn't benefit the whole community, the education of the men. But this strange thing happens because of something that is inherently, I don't know, in women, I, I can't fully explain it, I can't overly define it, but the statistics don't lie, that when communities of poverty educate their women, those women give back to the community in such yep. a way that the whole community is empowered and strengthened and comes out of poverty. That should be something that wakes the church up. Because the church should be at the forefront of dealing with issues of poverty. That's one of the things of being a force for good in communities is the church should be helping deal with poverty. Well, if the church is busy holding back women with one arm whilst it's trying to alleviate poverty in the other, it can't because you're at odds within yourself. Yep. The church needs to understand that the need to raise up women is across the board. And not only will it create a wealth of diversity of thought in leadership that will bless the church within itself, but it will raise up women in order to bring health, to bring better infrastructure, and to ultimately raise communities out of poverty. That should interest every church leader in the world. And so this is where I kind of start thinking, 
This is why God isn't a chauvinist, because he cares about the whole world, because he's not just interested in guys doing their thing and women following. But actually, right at the beginning of time, he made men and women to come alongside each other to shape and to influence because he knew both men and women together create the best form of leadership. Whereas one gender, and and I want to be clear on this, maybe I should redefine what I am. I'm not necessarily a feminist because in the sense that I don't want to fight for women at the expense of men. What I am is egalitarian. I I really want men and women alongside each other because I believe a women-only leadership is going to have problems in the same way that men-only leadership. I really believe God created men and women to lead together. And when that happens, well, the whole world is better off because of it. Well said. Uh, Our podcast name is Equivalence, which means of same value. So I definitely agree with you. Just a a little uh, footnote to what you were saying about alleviating poverty. It's very interesting. The statistics prove as well that in countries where women are allowed to participate to democracy, there is less corruption, very Hmm. interestingly, better governance in general. And recently, very interesting statistic as well was done about women in farming And in regions of the world that are quite poor, women were given lots of farming land. And there's an increased sustainability on the farms that are managed and farmed by women over men. Another interesting piece of of information like that was, I don't know if you remember Grameen Bank? Yes. One of the first microcredit banks that was created Mm -hmm. that ended up very quickly loaning pretty much only to women because he had such a better return on investment. Better return on loan, better return on investment. And even better than that, when women that the bank loaned money to were successful in their businesses, what they did is that they reinvested their profit into the bank. So they would become investors in the bank and it would just carry on like this. So interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I mean, I hope that the church will recognize that. I think it's recognized in a way because a lot of mission fields and difficult areas of the world where you have to do a lot of work with poverty are led by actually by women. What doesn't reflect this important role of women is in leadership position. So it's very similar to. The corporate world where, you know, you have a lot of women in, in the uh, productive work, but there is nobody at the top. Yeah. So the strategy doesn't get influenced by women very similarly. I have to say, I really do believe the tide is turning. Yes. Both outside of the church and within the church. You know, it is more and more that I'm coming across wonderful men who are leading churches or leading movements or streams in churches. and who are absolutely as passionate as I am to see women raised up. And I'm seeing this at an increased rate. And I kind of feel like there's something happening where people are waking up to this Mm. is an important issue. And, you know, I think there's actually been lots and lots of people, even within the church, who've always believed that men and women are equal, but have maybe seen this as like a women's issue, maybe seen this as something that, you know, there's so many other things to be dealing with. Maybe this isn't as important, but it feels like we're living in a season where loads of people who've 
I meet people all the time in the church who are like, I've always believed what you're saying, what you're writing about. I never even realized I should be using my voice about it. Mm. And so I think there's a mindset change happening where it's not that, you know, the whole church is terrible and evil and chauvinistic. That That is not true at all. But that there's a sense that people are waking up to, wait, this is actually a really important issue. It's not a niche issue or it's not a problem that women just need to resolve. But actually, this is an issue that men and women need to resolve together because it's not just about letting women have their say, but there's so many ramifications about this that are important globally, that are going to have deep impact for communities. And that's the thing I'm excited about. Even as I wrote my book, Equal, you know, my main aim was really to answer the question of, is God a chauvinist? I I really wanted to show from (laughs) the technicalities of the Bible how it is incorrect to use the Bible as a platform for saying anything that equates to women Mm. are not equal. I I wanted to show through, uh, you know, really dissecting the Bible, hey, you can argue that from your own different lenses, but you can't argue it from the Bible. But the reason I wanted to do that was partly because I was meeting people who believed this in theory, but didn't know how to even communicate it. So I wanted to give them a voice. I wanted to say, here, I've armed you with the technicalities. Now go and do something about it because it has pretty big impact. So we might as well wake up and it's happening. I'm telling you it's happening and I'm so excited to be part of it. (laughs) That's great to hear because it's happening in all industries and it was just about time. Katya, it was such a pleasure to chat with you. Anything else you want to say to finish this conversation? And also, I'm sure people will want to follow your work and to get in touch with you. So if you can let us know where we can do so. Sure, absolutely. So to find me is pretty easy. You can look at the website, either frequentsee.org, or you can look at thetableboston.com. And, you know, we've got the same for Instagram pages for both Frequency and the Table Boston Church. What I really want to finish this conversation is the idea of not letting responsibility fall to the next generation. I think that's something that I really live with is that it's worth the fight today Mm. so that my son and my daughter will live in a different world. In the moments where I feel discouraged or in the moments where I kind of feel like, oh my gosh, I should just give up, go and live in a vineyard in France and just, you know, (laughs) retire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In those moments, I think, no, there's too much at stake because this issue of gender equality will just keep coming round and round and round again until a generation is willing to stand up and make all of the sacrifices necessary to see the mindsets change. I believe we are that generation. And I I really want to kind of encourage any who felt discouraged (laughs) with the lack of equality. Let's keep going for this. Let's keep pushing, not in a kind of militant, angry way. I really do believe the manner in which something is done is just as important as the results that are seen. We've got to keep going with a healthy sense of humility and compassion for people, but not changing the subject so that the lives of our children will be better because of it. And so um, that's what I live with. That's the thing in front of my eyes. Well said. One of the reasons why we started Evelist is after 
the World Economic Forum released a quote that will remain in my head <laughs> with the big neon lights. It will take 99.5 years to close the gender gap from the day they released that, which was about top two oh, years ago. Man. And this is not possible. This, this is just not, not making any no. sense. So I love what you just said. Thank you, Katya. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Sophie. We hope you enjoyed the show and do not miss next episode where we will be talking about women on board of directors with Diana Wilde, the co-founder of a fantastic organization called Aurora 50 based in the UAE that promotes, support, encourages women on board of directors. Here is a sneak peek into our conversation. What's really important is that we involve the board directors. And this is really open to us being able to support them in terms of building a board career. So, you know, once you've actually been on one board and you start adding value and you start building that reputation, that you are somebody that adds value within the boardroom, you also then start building your network out with other board directors, which is going to increase your chances of getting other board posts.